I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 15, Mark chapter 15. Uh, I originally was intending, even up until last night, to go through verses 21 through 47. Uh, last night, late at night, I decided we're going to do 21 through 41, and uh, next week we will finish out Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, next Sunday morning. And so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 41 this morning, and the death of of Jesus Christ. The title of the sermon this morning is uh, Glimpses of Hope at Calvary. And as we go throughout the grueling scene and the narrative, we will also see the hope that Mark intertwines throughout the story, and I'll uh, rejoice with you in that together. Uh, this is the first time uh, in, at Colonial that I've had the opportunity to preach through a text that narrates the death of Jesus with you, at least that I remember. And so with that significant moment before us, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for grace to preach well and to hear well. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you today and we consider this text of Scripture. Lord, every text of Scripture is important. We love them. They're letters from you. Fathers, we come to this text today and we see the narration of the, the cruel death and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, in our sorrow and grief as we listen to this, may we be able to listen well, to recognize the reason that Christ came. As we go through this text, I pray that you would allow me to preach accurately and true to the Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it in our hearts, not only as a lesson in what the text says, but as in uh, ways that we can apply this to our lives. Lord, the significance and the applications from this text are not just simple, little transitions in life. It should change everything for us. Lord, would you give us grace to listen well and to apply well to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the final parts of Mark 15 this morning, uh, we've been going through uh, the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus the last few weeks. Uh, the last two weeks, we looked at the trials of Jesus. Uh, both trials were rigged. There was a Roman one and a Jewish one. It starts with the Jewish trial. I described it this way uh, at the end of Mark 14. You could read about it, but uh, the Jewish trial was a fixed trial at night with false witnesses in the wrong location. Uh, the whole thing was rigged. They were looking for a reason to put Jesus to death. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of his day, Jewish leaders of his day, the most powerful men of his day, were looking for a way to kill him, and that's what they arranged. The Roman trial was also rigged, the beginning of Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, we read about this. The Roman trial nearly broke out into a frenzied riot until the governor, Pilate, caved into the pressure of the people and gave them what they wanted. He gave them Jesus to be crucified. So Pilate, uh, verses 16 through 20, delivers Jesus over to the soldiers, and they begin mocking him and going after him, and, and then leading him on his inevitable journey to the cross. The next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the events 
that are connected with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This morning, we'll look at the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, in verses 21 through 41. And the way I want to arrange this narrative with you, the way I want to tell it, as Mark here has it recorded, is I would like to arrange it around three primary characters that are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So uh, this story will start out in grueling detail and the story of human ignorance and brutality. But by the end of the story today, I think that you'll see some hope from God himself as he gets involved in this narrative. And so let's trace the involvement of these three characters. It starts with the soldiers in verses 21 through 24. Look down in your Bible at verse 21. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, before you look up from your Bible, earlier in this chapter, we find out who, from a human perspective, are the people most responsible for the execution of Jesus. If you look in your Bible, verse 16, it comes right out here and says, as Pilate delivers Jesus over to the soldiers. See verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace. A parenthesis there, and then it says, and they called together the whole battalion, the soldiers do. Look at verse 17, and they clothed him. Uh, Verse 17, middle of the verse, or near the end, they put it on him. Verse 18, and they began to salute him. Verse 19, and they were striking his head. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. As we read in verses 21 through 24, the text we're looking at today, the subjects just continue. It's they, they, they. Look at verse 21. They compelled a passerby. Verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha. Verse 23, and they offered him with wine or wine mixed with myrrh. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments. This first part of the story, we consider the actions of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. Pilate had delivered Jesus over to a battalion of soldiers, 600 soldiers, and this is what they do. In our text, verses 21 through 25, Mark summarizes their brutal deeds with five succinct verbs. First, they recruit a man to carry his cross. Okay, so verse 21, they they compelled a passerby. According to the other Gospels, Jesus had been carrying his cross, but was faltering under the weight of it. Jesus was probably carrying the cross beam, which would weigh over 100 pounds normally. One of the things we must remember about this event is Jesus has already been mocked and brutally assaulted. He's he's, uh, barely recognizable as a human being, losing blood but carrying the cross, so he cannot continue. And so the soldiers recruit a Jewish, probably a proselyte, a God-fearer by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to carry this for him. 
And uh, verse 21 is actually a bit of a surprising moment because you get a lot of information about the man. We don't know much more about him but, than this, but you see that uh, he's from Cyrene. He was coming in from the country, so he's kind of visiting. He's the father of two men, Alexander and Rufus. Okay, It seems to be whoever the Simon person is who carries the cross of Jesus, that he's well known in the early church, perhaps even the church at Rome where Mark intends his gospel to be targeted to. It's very interesting to me that in Mark's gospel, in Romans chapter 16, we won't take the time to turn there, but there is another Rufus. Okay, there's a Rufus mentioned there, and it might actually even be the same Rufus. We don't know for sure. But this man, this guest, this Jew from Cyrene, takes up Jesus' cross and carries it for him. But then these soldiers aren't done. Verse 22, they bring Jesus to Golgotha. After giving all this information about Simon, Mark moves right back to Jesus and what they do to him, and what the soldiers do to him. They get him to the place of execution called Golgotha, which you probably have heard preaching on this before. This means a place of the skull, and it's probably because the hill in some way looked like a skull, a human skull. Then the next thing they do is they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Unfortunately, as we study this little phrase, wine mixed with myrrh, you don't see it anywhere else in the entire Bible. I wasn't able to find it anywhere else, wine mixed with myrrh. And so we don't know exactly what it is. A little bit later on, I think it's in verse 36, you see uh, something described as sour wine, which is something different, different word. But these soldiers are offering this, in this text, wine mixed with myrrh. Although it's only ever mentioned in this one text in the New Testament, it's amazing to me how many scholars and preachers say that they think that they know what it means. I've heard everything from this being a, a narcotic to help him with his pain, so the soldiers are like offering him a narcotic to ease the pain, or perhaps prolong his ability to handle the pain, or it could just be a cruel joke. I kind of lean the second way. It's a cruel joke. This myrrh likely makes the drink taste toxic. They recognize this time he probably needs a drink, so let's get him. Let's make it look like wine, but let's put myrrh in there. Regardless, Jesus refuses, and then they crucify him. It's the fourth, ver fourth verb here. And I'm just struck in verse 24 by how, how quickly, how starkly Mark describes this. Look at verse 24. And they crucified him. Four words here in most English Bibles. Mark describes with these four words the lethal blows that soldiers struck to Jesus. It would start likely if his execution was like other crucifixions where he would be impaled to the cross beam on the ground with large nails. It would then pound the nails through the victim's hands, hoist the cross beam to the cross. Once secure, they would fasten the atta or, or attach the victim's feet to the cross with nails as well. One member came up to me this morning and brought this to me. I, I'd read about this, I'd heard about this, but I had never seen it. This is a replica, okay? 
I know that they have found nails in tombs in and around Israel. One in particular, and this was a replica of it, was a nail that had lodged itself into a bone, leg bone, of a person who had been assaulted through crucifixion. And so this is a replica of the sort of nail that would be used to be pounded through the feet of Jesus. We consider this, we consider the cruelty of these men. They crucify him with nails. They attach him to the cross beam, the cross itself. And then finally, the text says, verse 24, and they divide his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And all the horrific actions of these soldiers, these brutal men, this one seems a bit out of place. You almost wonder, like, why is this here? I mean, they've already done the deed. They've crucified him. They've pounded the nails through. He's on the cross. Why have this? Well, it's because this last act of cruelty is actually a fulfillment of Scripture. In Psalm 22, David speaks prophetically. And you're going to hear that psalm many times today. Psalm 22. David speaks prophetically of a future righteous servant who will suffer for the people of God. In verse 18 of that psalm, it says this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they they cast lots. Here, scores, hundreds of years, thousands of years before the events of the cross, David predicted that this would happen, and it does. And while the soldiers' deeds of brutality must never be minimalized, this Old Testament citation reminds us who's actually in control here. God knew all about this. He knew everything would happen. He arranged it to happen. Acts tells us this. God the Father is in control. Not any of these events are outside of His sovereign plan for the Son. And so, we see the role of the soldiers. And, and really, there's much more that you could do. You could look at this and you could, you could look at it from different angles. You could look at it in different Gospels. But Mark goes pretty quickly through. The soldiers execute Jesus. That leads us to the second character, group of characters I want to emphasize with you today. We go from the soldiers to people who mock Jesus. Soldiers execute Jesus, people mock him, verses 25 through 32. Here, Mark looks at all the people who mock Jesus. And in these verses, Mark pictures the scornful mockery of Jesus through three groups. First, we see some bystanders. Look at verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. First few verses here in this section, verse 25 through 27, he's describing the scene, what it looked like at the cross, what it looked like around him. It's about 9 a.m. in the morning. There's a sign fixed upon his head that John's Gospel tells us was written in three languages. King of the Jews. King of the Jews. 
We learn as well that he is, be, he is being crucified between two victims, two, two other victims of crucifixion. These men deserved it, though they were robbers. But for my opinion, what happens starting in verse 29 is there is a strong emphasis upon the way people respond to Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Here, Jesus is in a life and death battle. Life and death battle with suffocation and blood loss and people begin to make fun of him. I think it's one of the worst forms of human depravity, true human depravity, that there is something in some people that they just like to see others in pain and agony. And that's what we're going to see here. It all starts for Jesus with some people who were simply passing by. They call them, they're bystanders. Simply coming along. They look up, they see Jesus hanging on the cross. They know who he is for what they say. And so Mark describes their mockery quite vividly in this text. They deride him in two ways. One, by wagging their heads at him. This could be translated shaking their heads at him. This is a a gesture of contempt. Perhaps someone has ever done this before. You know, you say something like, yeah, right. Something's never changed, right? They're shaking their heads at him. They're mocking their heads at him. This act, however, recalls how David said that they would treat the righteous suffering servant in Psalm 22 again. Psalm 22, verse 7 says this, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Thousands of years before this even occurs, God knows it would happen. According to the words of the psalmist David, they make mouths at me. This means, I think, that people would stare at him with open mouths. Others would shake their heads at him in derision. And the second way they deride him in Mark's text is, and they are saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Here they also mock what Jesus had said earlier. They question not only his power to build the temple in three days, but to get himself down from the cross. And so, it all starts with these bystanders. People just coming by the path, seeing him, mocking him, and saying these cruel things to him. But it doesn't stop there. If you keep reading in verses 31 and 32, you see the Sanhedrin speak up as well. Let's see what they say. Verse 31. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. I'll point out just a few observations about the the mockery of the Sanhedrin, their criticism, their mockery seems to be a little less public. I think the bystanders are doing it directly with each other and with Jesus, talking to him, mocking him to his face. The Sanhedrin, the text says, are mocking among themselves. Among themselves. Maybe some sort of hushed, hushed whisper that someone overhears because it's in the Gospels. The Holy Spirit leads them to record this as well, but 
They're mocking among themselves. They're saying to one another, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Little do these theological experts, I've changed that word about four times, I keep softening it. These theological experts, little do they know that this is actually the way he's going to go about saving the world. Saving lost people who will turn to him. Their biting sarcasm doesn't end here, though. They compel the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of Israel, to come down from the cross so that they might believe. And that leads a final group of people to mock him. Look at the end of verse 32. Someone else joins in the fray here. Verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That's right, even those who are right beside him, hanging on the crosses, mock him. Another gospel explains to us the nature of their comments and that Jesus is actually successful in turning one of them toward himself. But here, in Mark's gospel, even these vile, dying criminals mock Jesus. So as we look at the people and their role, we see them mocking Jesus. Christ. That leads us to one final character I want to consider with you for a moment this morning, and that is verses 33 through 41. We see God the Father confirming Jesus. God the Father confirming Jesus. Of course, God himself is active in the death of his son, Jesus. And in these verses, we will see, very briefly, two important supernatural acts that verify the significance of what happened on this day. Jesus' death. Two important supernatural acts will first read of unnatural darkness that occurred, and secondly, the tearing of the temple veil. I think one of these, in my opinion, is a primarily a sign of judgment, and the other is a sign of accomplishment or fulfillment. So first we look at the sign of judgment, verses 33 through 37, a sign of judgment, the darkness. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Here during the midday, from noon until 3 p.m., a strange and thick darkness hangs over Israel. I want you to make no mistake about this, men and women. This is a supernatural thing. God does this. And I think this darkness mirrors other times of great judgment from the hand of God. I think especially of the plagues. Remember the plagues? One of the plagues was severe blackness upon the land of Egypt as a sign of judgment from God. Here as we consider the physical darkness that's hanging on the cross and around Israel, I think that's symbolic as well. They're not just in physical darkness. 
So too, this land was full of spiritual darkness, experiencing the displeasure of God. And so, okay, so the way I like to frame this is you've got these two divine things that God does that signifies the seriousness of what's happening. One, he turns everything black. It's dark. Now, what's left in this, this paragraph is to see how people respond to that. Okay, and the first person who responds to that is Jesus. And Jesus, on hanging the cross, what does he say? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably a transliteration from Aramaic, I think Jesus is quoting the very first words of Psalm 22 again, where the psalmist cried out to God, David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I think Jesus understands the significance of the darkness and what it means. And Jesus is now functioning under the full wrath of God upon sin. He understands the significance of what is going on here. One man said it this way, Jesus enters temporarily into the God-forsakenness from which sinful humanity needs to be rescued. He cries out with the psalmist, why have you abandoned me? Then secondly, some bystanders misunderstand the darkness and what Christ is saying about it. They hear, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and they think he's calling for Elijah. Those first two words, Eloi, Eloi, uh, could in some ways, they're close to the words for Elijah. So while it might be easy to, to mishear this in the blackness, the darkness, I think this is a clear indication that they have no idea what's actually going on here. These bystanders, people just passing along the way, they don't know what's going on here. So they offer him sour wine, I think, to refresh him, hoping perhaps that he have a few more moments to live to see, what well, you know, maybe Elijah will come and deliver. That'd be pretty cool to see. Their efforts don't have that effect, however. Instead, Jesus cries out one last time, the text says, cries out one last time and takes his final breath. Other Gospels reveal to us what he does here. He pulls himself up after receiving that sour wine, pulls himself up one last time, and he cries out, Finished! Done. Completed. Then he collapses and he takes his final breath. One of the interesting things I point out here about this part of the text is the timing of his death is quite unusual. Normally, criminals would last several days on the cross, some as much as eight or nine days hanging on the cross. Jesus lasts but a few hours. Because in my opinion, he is neglected, experiencing the full fury of God against sin. The darkness indicates God's abandonment of Christ and his punishment on these bystanders who don't even know what's going on. And so you've got these two supernatural things God does. He sends darkness as a sign, judgment, and abandonment. And then a sign of accomplishment, the tearing of the veil of the temple. I want you to look in verse 38 in your Bible. We'll go through verse 41. 
says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. In this text, the final one we'll look at today, God does something extravagant here. As soon as Jesus passes away, the temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom. Other Gospels speak of different significant things that happened. We sang about some of them today, and these are true as well. There were earthquakes, tombs were emptying open, or opening up. Uh, but Mark is only concerned to talk about the curtain of the temple. He says it's from top to bottom, right? And you've hopefully heard about this before. From top to bottom, indicating that only God could do this. It's just like the initial blows at the top of the curtain and it just tears down. That uh, occurring to a multi-storied curtain uh, would speak to the power of God and his act here. But I want to I ask two questions about this action that I think are important for us to consider. The first question is, which curtain of the temple was torn? There are likely two choices here, because there were two large curtains in the temple. It could be the inner curtain or the outer curtain of the temple. Either is possible. If it was the inner curtain, then this is what kept people out of the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. You perhaps have read enough of the Old or New Testament to describe or understand the Holy of Holies. So there's a large curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies and the court of the priests. Okay, and if that's the, the, the veil that would be torn, only the priests would, would have been able to see it, because they're the only people who would be allowed to, to go into that court, the outer court that would see it, the court of the priests. book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus' work in opening up access behind this curtain. We read about that a little bit today. So it could be that inner curtain, and honestly, most people take it that way. I, I think that this could be that curtain. I think it could also be the outer curtain. Of the temple. The outer curtain of the temple was visible to the public, both Jew and Gentile. The outer curtain was placed there by King Herod and was extremely extravagant and bulky. This curtain would, would be uh, 25 meters high or uh, 81 feet or approximately 10 stories high. Well, either is possible to me. I think that this could perhaps be the right one. The, uh, the large veil just between the court of the Israelites and the court of the Gentiles. Okay, but then the second question I want to ask about that, well, it could be either one of those, those veils. What, does, what did it mean? Why did God do that? I think the significance of this supernatural act is not clearly stated. It's not found in any gospel. It might be a sign of judgment like the other one we saw, the darkness. You know, darkness means you're going to be under the wrath of God. You're under the wrath of God now, Jesus, and bystanders, you're dark as well. Maybe a sign of judgment like that. It might have a full meaning, convey a full meaning. It might also mean, however, that Jesus has now made 
access possible for both Jew and Gentile through something new. Through Jesus and the new covenant. Gentiles are no longer on the outside. They gain equal opportunity at the foot of the cross. That's how I would understand the significance of this. And that's where in the story, Mark concludes his account of the crucifixion of Jesus with a testimony from an unlikely source. Mark describes how a Roman centurion, a commander of 100 soldiers, responds. And this is a significant response. It's it's significant in a few ways. It's First, the very words that he uses are significant. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The title Son of God being extremely important. He he identifies or knows that, that this person was divine. We don't know what he responds to, whether it's the last breath or the way Jesus died on the cross, or perhaps he in some ways knows about the tearing of the veil of the temple occurring simultaneously with the death of Jesus. We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. But this Roman centurion is looking around, and he's able to see what Jewish people weren't able to see. This is different. Perhaps you've seen crucifixions before, never anything like this. The way this man dies is different. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I think it's also significant because of the location of this testimony in the book. And what you might not know or realize is that the Gospel of Mark is framed with two statements regarding Jesus being the Son of God. So go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the way the Gospel writer opens this account. There's a title kind of given to the whole book in Mark 1 and verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See there, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. So Mark, the writer of Scripture, John Mark, the writer of Scripture, makes it very clear in the beginning of this book. This is the good news of, the, of God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God. He uses the same exact two words that are used to translate what this Roman centurion says at the end of the gospel, at what I would call the height of the gospel, the confession of this Roman centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. Son of God. So the Roman soldier's statement is the high point of Mark's gospel. The Jews missed it, but this man now gets it. And imagine how encouraging that would be to Roman believers enduring under persecution from the Roman government to hear of a centurion getting it and understanding that this is the man of God. So Mark's Roman readers should understand that salvation is now open to anyone who believes in the Son of God. The question I close with today is, have you believed this? Will you believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus? It's a question only you can answer. God sent his son Jesus to the cross so that individuals might believe and be delivered from hell and be changed forevermore. Do you believe?
What will you do with the cross? Several years ago now, a church I was formerly an associate pastor at, there was a, an elderly woman who had been converted. She believed in Jesus Christ as her Savior, and her life was changed. She was a very, although elderly, very vibrant personality. Her name was Millie Kotwicka. Well, one day I went to visit Millie, and she was nearing death. And she made me make a promise to her. I don't normally like to promise people anything. who were just about ready to die. And she looked up at me and she says, Pastor Brent, promise me. Will you promise me? I'm like, i got to find out what it is first. She says, will you promise me that you will not give up on my husband, Gene? That you will continue to share the gospel with him? His name is Gene Kotwicka. And so I promised her. She passed away, and a few months later, I had the opportunity. Gene came to me, and uh, the Lord had led in his life. He was, I think he was 74, but uh, he had found a, uh, another woman that he was going to marry. And so he wanted me to perform the wedding. And so I, I walked through it, and I found out that Gene was still an unbeliever. He didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But the woman he was getting ready to marry was a believer. And so I, I'm in this scenario. I remember we were at McDonald's. And I just used this as an opportunity. I'm thinking of Millie as I'm doing this. I just used it as an opportunity for the gospel. I said, Gene, listen, before we talk about this marriage thing, I just have to ask you, where do you stand with Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And Gene says, yes, I do. He is a good man. Did great things very philosophical, very wise, sent from God. Hearing that answer as we're sitting at McDonald's, I said, well, let me just rephrase this question. What do you believe about the cross and the resurrection? Do you believe that? And Gene said, there's no way I can believe that. I don't believe that he died in that way, and I most certainly don't believe that he... He rose again three days later from the dead. I told Gene, according to the scriptures of God, the holy scriptures of God, then you are lost in your sin. You're on your way to hell. You need someone to deliver you. And so I asked the same question to you today. Where do you stand with the cross of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you've been coming to church for years alongside of your spouse or your friend. Have you ever believed that Jesus came to this world, that he was crucified in the ways we've seen described in this text, and that he rose again three days later so that you might be delivered from your sin? Have you done that? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we consider the cruel crucifixion of Jesus, I pray that its significance would be driven home to us. For those of us in the room, Father, who believe in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, the payment of our sin, Lord, might we, as the author of Hebrews says, might we then draw near to you with full assurance. Might we provoke one another 
to love and good works and so much more as we see the day approaching. Or if we know this story and we've considered it afresh and anew together today, might it be motivational to us to love you and love other believers here? But Father, for some under the sound of my voice today who are like Gene Kotwicka, this man I confronted about his need to believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for sins, is the only release from sin. Father, for some here today who've never believed and never repented, I pray that they would do so now. I pray that the sacrifices described by Mark in this gospel be just too overwhelming for them. Or would your spirit quicken? Would he help them understand their need for Christ? Lord, we pray that you would move and work and that souls would be saved today as a result of your word, your text here for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.